Thank you, Steve. And thanks to the love girls. We appreciate you guys so much. So open your Bibles to Psalm 37. Don't have the text for you on screen. We have some notes, but not the actual passage. And it'll be really helpful if you could see that together. And Debbie, yes, that means this is exactly what I preached last Sunday night. So you get to hear it again. All right. So normally it'll be synchronized week by week, but we had to monkey things up for a little bit here. So uh, you guys, this year as we uh, celebrate Advent and observe this, this special season, we're looking at a few psalms that teach us about waiting. We need to learn to wait because waiting is hard. It is, it is hard to wait for something good. And it's hard to wait for something that is painful and difficult to end. What's happening? Oh, all right. So I'm, I'm, getting, I'm getting the time out. Woo! All right, little ones, you may leave. Unless you want to stay and wait with us, it would be great. We'd love to have you. Thank but you. But you can head on down. Good. You ready? We good? Okay, let's do it again. So uh, let's see. Okay, so there's this proverb, you guys. And it says, hope deferred. Makes the heart grow sick. But a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. And that is absolutely true. Many of you have often experienced probably the deferring of hope. And you know that's not any fun. And Advent is one of, this, one of the things that really resonates well with people because most of us have had an experience, often a painful experience, of waiting for some painful thing to end. And as we've been talking about this for the last few weeks, I've heard from many of you that have shared some part of your story, your own journey through waiting. And so I'm so glad that it's the wisdom of the church we have the opportunity to kind of walk some of this journey together. Uh, psalm 37 is a psalm particularly well suited to Advent because it's about waiting, but it's waiting with a twist. Okay, I want you guys to notice. I'm going to read you a couple of samples from Psalm 37. You could follow along. And I want you to tell me, like, what's the sub-variety of waiting? Okay, what, what, what's the particular pain of this sort of a wait that's going on in Psalm 37? Okay, we'll look at three kind of excerpts from it to give you a sense of it. It permeates the whole thing. So take a look at verse 7 and following. It says, Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself. It tends only to evil, for the evildoer shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Okay, there's one sample. What's going on there? Here's another one. Similar idea. Verse 16. Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Or here's one more, verse 35. I've seen a wicked and ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall be altogether destroyed, and the future of the wicked shall be cut off. Okay, you guys, what's the psalm about? I know it's about waiting, but it's about waiting in what kind of an environment, what kind of a context, what kind of circumstance? What is it? Say it, Sarah Lynn, say it louder. 
Yes, right? Sarah Ellen said, when everybody else is sinning and doing whatever they want, and it seems like it's going really well for them, right, John? Yes, bad people prospering. It's one thing to wait for good things to happen or for bad things to end. That's no fun. But it's really hard to do that when all these guys over here aren't waiting at all. Like, why are these guys getting all the good stuff now? They don't even deserve it. And I'm over here being faithful and obedient, and it's not going well for me. That's really hard. Waiting is hard. It's hard to wait when the bad guys don't have to. It's super hard. I mentioned to you guys a couple weeks ago that Psalm 1 is the gateway to the Psalms. It invites us into this great story that the Psalms are telling. And we're introduced to these two main characters, right? The first character is this righteous man and he flourishes like a tree planted by a river. Like everything he does prospers. It's great. He loves God. He loves his word and he flourishes. And then there's this other character, this wicked guy, and he is like chaff that the wind blows away. And he is no more. But I also warned you that the story has twists and turns. And it doesn't always look like this, right? In Psalm 37, did you notice that the bad guy is described? How is he described? Do you remember this? He's like a green tree, a laurel tree spreading his branches. Because that's an homage, an inverted homage to Psalm 1. Because in Psalm 1, it's the good guys like the tree. But this time... What's the deal with the bad guy being the flourishing tree? This isn't what I thought the story was going to go like. Not only that, but in Psalm 37, it's the uh, wicked who have abundance in verse 16. In Psalm 37, it's the evil one that prospers in verse 7. And so the question is, what gives? Like, what's the, what is the deal here? It is hard to wait. It is hard to suffer, doubly so. When you've been obedient, when you've played by the rules... You've honored God with your decisions. And this guy over here who didn't, he's the one who's winning. Right? It doesn't make any sense, right? Maybe you've seen this at work. Maybe you've seen somebody that you work with that does a crummy job, they cut corners, and they get promoted even though you are the one who deserves the raise. Maybe you've lived your life in a way that you have been sexually pure. You have honored the Lord. And maybe even, maybe you ended a relationship and you lost something that was precious to you because you couldn't, you wouldn't persist in a pattern of sin while other people who are less scrupulous than you have gone on to enjoy the relationship that you have been denied. Maybe you guys have ever heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Is, that a, is he a familiar name to you? He was a German pastor. He was an author. Um, and he saw the great wickedness of Hitler as he was rising, as many of his countrymen didn't. Um, he opposed him. In fact, he even took part in a plot to assassinate him. But the plot was discovered. He was captured, imprisoned, and he was ultimately executed. Here's a remark that he made in a letter to a friend while he was in prison. He said, A prison cell is like our situation in Advent. One waits, hopes, does this or that, ultimately negligible things. But the door is locked. It can only be opened from the outside. That is how I feel just now. You guys, Psalm 37 is about wading through that. And I wonder, where does that land for you right now? Are you a party to or a witness of a great injustice where somebody played by the rules and somebody else cheated and the cheater is prospering? where you are suffering and you are waiting while somebody less deserving, more evil, 
seems to have it all. Psalm 37 has lots of insights, and you could mine this thing for many more. I hope you might. I hope you might take some time this week to spend a hangout in Psalm 37. I'm going to just pick one. It is the first, I think it's the chief idea, the primary idea. And though it's throughout the whole psalm, you can see it particularly vividly in these first few verses. So here's, here's how the thing opens up. It says, fret not yourself because of evildoers, and be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord, do good, dwell in the land, befriend faithfulness, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will ultimately, it's implied, give you the desires of your heart. Guys, the big idea of this song is right there. And it is simply this, is wait for the end of the story. Take the long view. The story is very often rough in the middle. But the story ends well for those who make God their refuge. I will confess to you, and I have told you this in the past, I'm not naturally suited to this. I'm just not. If I'm losing in the third inning, I think the game is over. And I have a really, really hard time seeing around the corner to the ultimate kind of prevailing. Or maybe instead of not having, instead of that I can't see, it's that I think I can see. And I can tell you right now. We're dead, right? And this is the way I, I tend to look and see this. So for me, Psalm 37 is a really helpful and a necessary corrective. I need Psalm 37. You might be like me and you need this hope when everything looks like it's a mess. Um, it may be that for you, current reality seems determinative. Or maybe not. Maybe you've got more faith and hope and optimism than I do. And if so, game on. That's great. But I need to be reminded the present reality does not indicate the future result. It's hard for me to see it. Dave Funk is different than me. Whenever we talk about things, Dave's like, no, nah, it's going to be great. I'm like, bro, I think we're dead. And he's like, no, 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 don't give up hope, right? I need people in my life that don't give up hope, right? And Psalm 37 is all about the long view, okay? It gives us snapshot after snapshot after snapshot of the end of the game, the end of the story. Not just one picture. It's like, the, it's, like, it's like the author of Psalm 37 has received in the mail a stack of photographs from the future. And he's like, no, 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 look at this one. This is how the story ends. Or look at this one. This is how the story ends. Look, here's another one. This is how the story ends. Picture after picture after picture. I know it's not going well today. And I know all these bad guys are flourishing. But I got a packet of photographs from the future. And this is how. The story ends. That is the central idea of Psalm 37. And in fact, far from contradicting Psalm 1 as it appears to do, it, it, it confirms it. The righteous do ultimately flourish. And the wicked do come to nothing eventually. So wait for it. I promise you it will end badly for them and beautifully for those who make God their refuge. So I went through Psalm 37, you guys, and I isolated all the snapshots. What are all the pictures of those who oppose God? Here they are in rapid order. You can go back and underline these if you want to see, kind of do a compare and contrast throughout the book. Here are the pictures, just boom, boom, boom. They will fade like the grass, wither like the green herb, be cut off, will be no more, will not be there. The Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees his day is coming. A sword shall enter their own heart. Their bows shall be broken. The arms of the wicked shall be broken. The wicked will perish. They vanish. They vanish like smoke. The smoke vanishes away. They shall be cut off. The wicked are cut off. They shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. And again, I ask you, what was the primary image of Psalm 1 for what will happen to those who are in rebellion against God? 
they are like chaff that the wind blows away. And that's what Psalm 37 says over and over and over again. Now, real quick word here because it's very strange. It would be weird and not okay for us to gloat about this. Have you ever heard the term imprecatory psalms? Do you know what imprecatory psalms are? They are the psalms, Psalm 37 is one of them, that seem to exalt judgment over mercy. Okay? Like like this. And it's uncomfortable. It should make you uncomfortable. Because though the Bible says that mercy triumphs over judgment and we therefore love mercy, apart from His grace... He would be under judgment. We would be the ones that are cut off. And so those of us who deserve justice but get mercy have no, no standing, no place to be that we would scoff at sinners and, and mock them for the misery that awaits them. Right? We are a people who have known forgiveness. So we are to be a people who love forgiveness. But the reality is some people will never come to His grace. They will persist in rebellion. And many do great harm. And while they are doing great harm, our job is to take it. Our job is to be patient, to be kind, to be long-suffering. As Christians, we turn the other cheek and we seek to do them good. And do you guys know what the secret is to being patient in the presence of great evil. It is knowing the end of the story. You guys, the imprecatory Psalms do not turn us into bloodthirsty monsters. They make us peace-loving and patient because we can take God at His word. He says, it's mine to avenge. I will repay. And if we believe Him, if we trust that He will do it, then we don't have to. He tells us, you go be nice. You turn the other cheek. And it is the imprecatory psalms such as Psalm 37 which makes it possible for us to do that, for us to love peace. Knowing that God will be just means that I don't have to take justice into my own hands. And that's really good news because I'm not that smart. I'm not as smart as I think I am. And neither are you. I saw a TV show once. It was kind of a Twilight Zone ripoff kind of thing where it dropped people into these scenarios of like, you know, some weird situation, kind of play it out. In one episode, um, there was a woman who was brutally assaulted and violated and just deeply traumatized by this assault that she suffered. And her husband went to, to pick her up. I think she was at a police station making a report, and she was just shaken and broken. And he was just horrified at all that she had endured. And as they were driving home, she saw the man who had assaulted her. And she cried out, that's him, that's him, that's the guy. And he's like, well, I mean, are you sure? Of course I'm sure. How could I not be sure? That's him. And the husband's like, ah. He pulls the car over to the side of the road and he just parks it. And he gets out and he follows this man into a parking deck, follows her upstairs, up, you know, up, up to the top level of this deck where they're all alone, and he kills him with his own two hands. And he renders justice. And he leaves his body between two cars and he walks back down. And he gets in the car with his wife, knowing that he has made her safe. Her assailant has been, been killed. And as they continue to drive home, she says, That's him! That's him! That's the man. That's him! That's him! That's the man. And he is ashen 
because we're not as smart as we think we are. And justice has not been left in our hands. We wait, and we wait patiently, and we trust the Lord to bring, out, bring about the right thing in His good timing, with His wisdom and His omniscience. Those aren't the only snapshots. They're snapshots of what happens to those that persist in rebellion. But there's also a set for those who are in Him. And you guys, it's an entirely different future. You need to see these pictures. You need these snapshots. The long view, the big picture, the final story for those who make God their refuge looks like this. And again, just in rapid form, it says, He will give you the desires of your heart. He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light, your justice as the noonday. You shall inherit the land. The meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The Lord upholds the righteous. Their heritage will remain forever. They're not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance. They shall inherit the land. The steps of a man are established by the Lord. He shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. Not be forsaken. Children become a blessing. You shall dwell forever. He will not forsake his saints. You'll be preserved forever. The righteous shall inherit the land. How many times have we heard that? Over and over and over again. Your steps do not slip. You will not be abandoned. He will exalt you too. Can you guess? Inherit the land. Again, there is a future for the man of peace. The Lord helps them and delivers and saves. Do you guys hear the massive contrast? There is a terminal end for the wicked. They will be cut off. They will be no more. They will be like smoke that vanishes. But those who love God will have no ending. Their heritage lasts forever. They dwell forever. They're preserved forever. They inherit the land and they dwell upon it forever. The long view is long, 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 long. And knowing that is the key to getting through short-term misery. Eternal life with unending and increasing happiness is a sufficient compensation for whatever these 70 or 80 years holds. So we wait for the big picture. And you guys, by the way, did you hear Jesus in this? Did you hear Jesus quote Psalm 37? Do you know where it is? Matthew 5. Very good, Nick. What does he say? The meek shall inherit the earth. that phrase, the meek shall inherit the earth? That's Psalm 37. Here's, this translation is the meek shall inherit the land. But that's exactly right. And what Jesus is doing there, he's saying, you guys, you get it all. All of it, all of it, the earth, the world will be ours. You may have to suffer now, but exceptional happiness is coming. So wait for it, because it's, when the happiness comes, it's never going to stop. Okay? Now, last week I asked and answered three questions. I can put those on the board if you don't mind. Why do we have to wait? What do we do while we wait? And how do we bear it? Like, how do we get through this? And I offered three answers, which I still think are true. But I'm going to answer it again in completely different ways. Um, but first of all, let's review. According to last week, why do we have to wait? What did I tell you last week? Why do we wait? Why is this in the providence of God, his plan? Do you remember? Uh, say it louder. I don't know if you said Growth in the waiting. Yeah, we're formed in the waiting. Something is happening that can't happen when we get everything we want. I wish it could. That'd be great, but it can't. And so we're formed in the waiting. Number two, what, what do we do in the midst of it? Do you remember? What do we do while we wait? Say it. We lament, right? 
we, we, we do complain, we should lament, right? We lament, we go to God in hope, right? And we lament. And then what helps us bear it, you guys? How do we get through it? We're life in community, right? We're doing life with other people, right? We're formed in the waiting. We lament. We do this thing in community. That's all true. I do not repudiate a word of it. However, I want to answer all three questions in a different way again this morning. So why? Why is it that we have to wait? I think another reason is that we don't actually know what we need. I think we do, but we're wrong. We don't, right? If we always got what we wanted when we asked for it, we would miss out on so much. And when I was in that painful situation that I talked about a couple weeks ago, I couldn't see the future and I didn't know the things I needed. I didn't know what needed to happen in my life to prepare me for it. Certainly not the more distant future. And all I wanted at the time was just to go back to the way things used to be. But God doesn't bring us backward. He brings us forward. And so we don't know what we need. And so we need to have the humility to say, Lord, I really would do this differently. But maybe you have a plan or a purpose that I just can't see right now. That's first. I didn't know what the future holds. I didn't know the purpose for the things that I'm suffering. And so we trust him and we wait. Number two, what do we do while we wait? We try near to him. Do you guys know what Kelly thinks was the best time in our marriage? She thinks it was those days of enormous darkness for me. Now, was it because she is sadistic? not not at all it's because in those months couple years I needed her and I appreciated her and I was drawn to her she was so well suited to meet me in my sorrow and fear and she was so optimistic so cheerful and hopeful and courageous and patient that I was in love Right? I love Kelly. I'm, I'm a fortunate man. I've married a woman who, is, who meets the abundance of my needs with kindness and grace and generosity in a thousand different ways. But in that particular time, I was really in love. She was a balm to my soul, my wounds. She was a great comfort, and I loved her. And I wasn't snippy about the house being messy, Right? I didn't care. I just didn't care because I was grateful for her love to me. And I think that God knows that when life is hard, it makes us want to draw near to him, just like I drew near to Kelly. And I think he knows that when everything is great, we can get a little bit snippy about the house being messy or whatever that looks like. We do not appreciate him as much as we ought to. Well, final question is how do we bear it? I think when it comes to bearing great pain, the tears of Jesus are a great help to us here. You guys, he wept when his friend Lazarus died. And on the eve of his own crucifixion, he entered into Jerusalem and he should have been thinking about himself and the misery that awaited him. He saw the city, he saw her destruction that was coming, and he sobbed. And he weeps over your sorrow. He is not indifferent to your grief. He cares about the things that pain you. Lewis captures this in The Magician's Nephew, one of the magnificent stories in the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm rereading those right now for probably the sixth time. And one of my favorite scenes is when Diggory 
has this interview with Aslan. Diggory is a small boy. His mom is sick. In fact, she is dying, and he desperately wants to help her. The great preoccupation of his life is to see his mom be well. But Diggory's been given a mission to undo a great harm that he caused. He had brought a witch into Narnia on the day of her birth, this great source of evil. And Aslan has tasked him to do something to limit that wickedness. And here's the conversation, uh, Diggory's encounter with Aslan. Yes, said Diggory. He had for some idea, a wild idea of saying, well, I'll try to help you if you promise to help my mother. But he realized in time that the lion was not the sort of person that one could try to make bargains with. But when he had said yes to his mission, he thought of his mother and he thought of the great hopes he had and how they were all dying away. And a lump came into his throat and tears in his eyes. And he blurted out, but please, please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure mother? Up till then, he'd been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. But now in his despair, he looked up at its face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own. And wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know. Grief is great. Only you and I in this land know that yet. Let us be good to one another. I'm not going to tell you what happens next. You should go read the books because they're fantastic. But you should know, and I will tell you this, that Jesus is grieved by the things that grieve you. As I said, he is not indifferent to your pain. And I have found that knowing that helps. So, why do we wait? We don't really know what we need. What do we do while we wait? We draw near to him, and he draws near to us. And how do we bear it? I think by seeing the tears of Jesus. You have a sympathetic high priest. Guys, the story ends well. Psalm 37 is saying, look at the end of the story. Take the long view. Behold these snapshots from the end of the story. Do not envy the wicked, for it not, will not go well with them. And though you may be losing in the third, you are going to win the game. So be in hope. All right? Lord Jesus, we love you because you are the one who wrote the story. You are the one where our hope is. And Lord, I pray for these here right now that are waiting through some injustice. Would you give them grace and patience to wait? And Lord, I pray that you might even fill their hearts with compassion that they might see the dreadful, miserable end of those who are in rebellion to you. And not only would that assuage their, their longing for justice, but it would fill them with mercy. And that we would be a people who love our enemies, who do good to those who harm us. That we entrust all judgment to you. That we would be a people that are agents of your mercy and your love and your kindness because we're so overwhelmed by the kindness that you've showed us. We love you. Amen.